God designed us for life, an abundant life with him and with one another. But there's a problem. Someone has taken our life. Jesus said the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. We're missing out on life like God intended because we go looking for life in all the wrong places. But there is a solution to this problem. Jesus said he came so that we may have life and have it in abundance. That's why Cross United Church exists, to help people find life like God intended. We believe life like God intended happens when three things are united in our lives. When we're brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ, when we're brought together in authentic community, when we're deployed on the joyful mission that God has for us in the world, we experience fullness of life. Life like God intended, united in wholehearted worship, authentic community, and joyful mission is why Cross United Church exists. Well, good morning, Cross United. I'm so glad that you've joined us for this online message. We're going to be in John 11 this morning, looking at one of my favorite stories in the Bible. As a pastor, I've been a pastor for over 10 years. I've had the painful privilege of doing many funerals, walking with people through the end of their life and then presiding over the celebration of their life after they've passed away. And through those funerals, I've, I've come to expect there's a number of elements in, in, you know, you have the singing of a hymn or two. You may have family and friends sharing memories. Uh, you may have um, a, a time for, for people to come and, and to, to grieve. You're always going to have me there sharing the gospel and talking about Jesus and sharing the hope of of what Jesus offers to us. And, and after a funeral, uh, there's usually a reception. And after the reception, we go and you may have punch and sandwiches or something to, to sort of get together and, and just enjoy being together and to, to mourn together and to, to remember together. Well, after a funeral, I often have someone come up to me, maybe a couple people, and they'll, they'll politely say, a nice service, Pastor. Or they'll say something like, uh, good sermon, or, you know, thanks for doing that. Thanks for being here. But I've never had anyone come up to me before the funeral and confront me because I didn't heal the person and prevent them from dying. And I've never had come, someone come up to me after the funeral and say, hey, you know, that was okay, but I'm really disappointed you didn't raise my friend from the dead. Um, because, because that's not part of what happens at a funeral. Unless Jesus comes to the funeral. When Jesus comes to the funeral, things change. Things change when Jesus goes to a funeral here in John 11. Um, it wasn't the first time here in John 11 where Jesus had crashed a funeral. There, there are three stories in the Gospels of when Jesus went into or, or encountered someone who had died or, or in, was in the midst of a funeral procession and raised that person from the dead. There was a royal official or a leader in the synagogue's daughter who had passed away, and Jesus raised her from the dead. There was a, a widow uh, whose son had passed away, her adult son who would have been her sole provider, and there, there, Jesus encounters the funeral procession coming out of the, the town and the village of Nain, and Jesus raises him from the dead. But his final and culminating act of resurrection, at least in terms of raising others, is here in John 11. 
As this story unfolds, we see it's sort of the culminating point in the first section of the Gospel of John. Um, some scholars traditionally have divided John into two sections or two, quote, books. Um, the Book of Glory and the Book of Signs. The Book of Signs is chapters 1 through 11, um, and then transitioning in chapter 12 to the Book of Glory, leading up to Jesus's betrayal crucifixion and his resurrection and through the book of signs there are a number of places where Jesus performs miracles and he, and he shows people who he is by what he does and then we see that in all throughout the first 10 chapters of John and there's there's five signs that Jesus he turns water into wine and he he multiplies bread for for hungry people he gives a blind man's sight but his culminating miracle is here, the penultimate, the second to last miracle here in John 11, is a foreshadowing of his own great miracle and the miraculous resurrection of Jesus himself. If you got your Bibles or your app, would you turn or tap with me to John 11? In John 11, we see the story of Lazarus who's passed away and Jesus's miraculous power of resurrection. Um, and here in this, in this, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And we could, we could squeeze from this, uh, so many books and chapters and sermons and studies. So we're going to, we're going to give a big picture overview of this passage today. And we're going to see three things woven into the text. We're going to see the purpose of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the promise of Jesus, the purpose of the person and the promise of Jesus. Look there in John 11, verse 1. Now, a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Martha was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Jesus, that is, Lord, the one you love is sick. And at the very purpose of the the narrative here next in verse 4, Jesus explains to his disciples who were with him the purpose. This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The word there for the word so that in our English Bibles is a single word in Greek that indicates purpose. So the purpose of Jesus in this sequence of events and in this story and in the lives of the, the these women he loves and his friend Lazarus and his disciples and those who are going to be a part of seeing what he does the purpose is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it and so we see there that the coordination the equalization of the glory of God and the glory of the Son of God because Jesus is one God with the Father and the Spirit and, and we see there that, that the purpose is not death, even though there, the, the, the purpose will pass through death. As Lazarus dies, we see that this is not the ultimate purpose of, of what Jesus is doing. His purpose is to display his glory. Now, Jesus, it says in verse 5, loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again. 
Jesus answered, aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. This is a really counterintuitive thing that's happening. But it says, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so he waited. He didn't go immediately. He didn't rush to see them. He didn't rush to comfort them. He didn't rush to heal Lazarus. He waited two days. He, 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 he waits because of his love for them. Because there's something greater than healing that they're going to experience. And, and he says we, we, we must walk while there is light. There's 12 hours in a day, meaning you know generally half the day is light, half the day is dark. And, and it's kind of as a word picture that we have to do what God has called us to do while we have time that God has given us to do it. And now he says, the time is arriving. He said this, verse 11, and then he told them, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Here's the second aspect of Jesus's purpose. His first purpose is for his glory, the glory of God in the Son of God. And the second purpose is to show his life-giving power. Because he saw the situation differently than everyone else. For, for everyone else, death was the end. Death was, was impossible to overcome. Augustine said, Lazarus was dead to men who were unable to raise him up. But for the Lord, he says he's just sleeping because raising up Lazarus is as easy as if we're waking someone up from a nap. This is the power of Jesus in the life of his friends. His disciples say in verse 11, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death. But they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there. Now here's that purpose again. So that you may believe. But let's go to him. Here's the third aspect of his purpose. And these things are all woven together. His his purpose of his own glory, his purpose of life-giving power, and his purpose here of cultivating faith provoking faith in the heart of his disciples. They already believe in him, but they don't fully believe in him as he fully is. This is, this is the call he calls us into constantly, to believe what we believe, to believe what we believe. Jesus intends to raise Lazarus from the dead so that those who are believers or on the fringe of belief may be driven more fully into wholehearted trust of him who he is. The disciples rouse themselves here to join him, led by the bravado of Thomas. Thomas is my middle name. I've always had an affinity for Thomas. And we, we know his nickname because of what happens later in John chapter 20, doubting Thomas. But here, here Thomas is full of bravado. Look at verse 16. Then Thomas called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. I just think the contrast as we we get into verse chapter 20 um, in, in the weeks ahead, we're going to see J Thomas refusing to believe at the testimony of his, of his brothers in Christ and his friends that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Here we see his bravado. Let's go with him that we may die with him. And I think we see here the limit 
of human heroics and, and that the Christian life isn't about us heroically following Jesus, but Jesus heroically saving us. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. In Bethany, which was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away, many of the Jews had come to Mar Martha and Mary to comfort them and their brother. Now, folklore, and, and there's rabbinic tradition that, that says that um, some Jews believed that the soul of a person would hover over the body for three days, and when, when decomposition set in, that the soul would depart. And so the, the significance of him being dead four days is that he is really, truly dead. He's dead and rotting. There's, there's starting, there's gonna, we're gonna see in, in just a minute, there's starting, there's a smell that's developed here. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, verse 20, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And, and Martha here says, look what she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. This, um, some have taken as a statement of faith, but I actually think it's more um, convincing to see it as an accusation, an implication. In other words, Jesus, you should have been here. Where were you? Where were you, Lord? If you had been here, he wouldn't have died, and you weren't here. Where were you? Here we begin to see exactly what Jesus is doing. He's creating faith in the heart of someone who thought they believed. We're just like Martha. Martha is us. We are her. We, we can wallow in the past and let shame about our past mess-ups and regret and, and what, what could have happened turn us in bitterness against God and, and we begin to blame God. There's a song by the Fray um, that, that I think captures this. I found God on the corner of First and Amistad where the West was all but one, all alone smoking his last cigarette. I said, where you been? He said, ask any, anything. Where were you when everything was falling apart? This is, this is the song confronting God. All my days spent by the telephone that never rang, and all I needed was a call. God, I just wanted to hear from you. That never came. From the corner of First and Amistad, lost and insecure, you found me, you found me, lying on the floor, surrounded. Why'd you have to wait? Where were you? Where were you? Just a little late. You found me, you found me, just a little late. Now, we might not get that raw, but in our hearts, we have all experienced that sense. God, you were just a little late. Where were you when it mattered? This is what Martha is confronting Jesus with. We put on a spiritual face. Martha, look what she says in verse 22. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Um, most, most of us, I think, live our Christian life at this place. Um, we think we know and we think we believe in the present power of Jesus, but we get exposed just like Martha does. Look what Jesus says. Your brother will rise again. And here he, he draws back the curtain on Martha's heart and he draws back the curtain on our heart because we are Martha and Martha is us. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, here's a really interesting thing. Throughout the Gospel of John, there's a comparison and contrast between the Greek word know 
and the Greek word believe. The purpose of John is to cultivate and provoke faith or believing. It's always a verb, just like no is a, is a verb. Believing Jesus. Here Martha says she thinks she knows. But what Jesus is going to call her into is not what she thinks she knows. Her theory of the too late of the past and the too soon of the future. I know he'll, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And I know he'll rise at the last day. But, but for Martha, it's both too soon and too late. It's too late for Jesus to heal Lazarus. And it's too soon for Lazarus to be raised. And so she's living in a present without hope and without faith. We live in this same place so often. With the theory of the future and the regrets of the past. Martha had good theology. She knew her Bible. She knew what Daniel 12, 2 says. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Christians, I remember in college, I was um, uh, troubled when the professor talked about Plato's um, philosophy of the immortality of the soul and, and how... Um, it, it, it was the same as what Christians believed. And I, I was all, whoa, did Christians copy, you know, this Greek philosopher? But the thing is, is Christians don't just believe in the immortality of the soul. We believe in the resurrection of the body, that God will raise all from the dead, those in Christ to everlasting life and those outside of Christ into judgment. And he will renew the cosmos, the cre created order, and he will make all things new. Martha understood the theory of the future and she had her regret and her anger at God over the past, but she doesn't believe in his present power. Years ago, Thomas Aquinas said she thought that Christ had less power when he was absent than when he was present. Why would she think that? Because that's what's true of people. We have less power when we're absent than we do when we're present. There's very little we there's not much we can do when we're far away. We we feel helpless and often we are helpless, but God is different. Of course he says this could be said of a limited and created power, but it should not be said of the infinite and uncreated power, which is God, because God is equally related to both things present and absent. Indeed, all things are present to him. In other words, Martha needs to understand that Jesus is man, but he also is God. And, and that means even if Jesus hadn't been there, he was there and he can meet them in that place. And that if he hasn't met them in that place the way they wanted to, it's because he has a purpose for them in it. And he calls Jesus into that purpose. He calls her to see through belief. He calls her to believe so that she can see, to encounter him and his word. And that's, that's what he's calling us into because we are Martha and Martha is us. He's calling us to encounter like he was calling her to encounter. By his spirit, he's calling us to encounter him in his person and his promise. Look what he says. This is the heart of the passage, 11, 25, and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
This is the fifth of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus uses the the, the words I am um, a number of times in, in, a, in a total absolute sense where he's claiming the name of the triune God, um, the, the name of Yahweh from Exodus 3 in the burning bush. Seven times he uses it with a metaphor or a word picture. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. And here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha needs to understand that Jesus, Jesus is not just powerful, but he is life. He is life. Therefore, he can raise the dead. Notice he doesn't say, I will be the resurrection and the life. I was the resurrection and the life. In Martha's in Martha's framework, it's both too late and too soon. But Jesus is like, I'm here right now. I am present tense, resurrection and life. Do you believe this? This is the, this is the point he wants to bring her to. He wants to bring her from her theoretical knowledge and her bitterness and regret to present faith in him. Do you believe this? He brings her to this point of confession. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Just as almost a side note, just notice how central these women are to this story. Other than Jesus, they're the main characters. Lazarus is in the tomb. The disciples are on the side. This story centralizes these women, some people claim the Bible promotes uh, sexism and, and marginalizes women. That's totally, that's just a false accusation. This would have been a, a startling narrative in the ancient world, making women the center characters in this story. And, and they move to Jesus with their, with their pain and their sorrow. And they both say, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died accusation it's too late lord but they make both of them a critical and life-saving move in the midst of their pain in the midst of their regret in the midst of their anger they move toward jesus they move toward jesus they go to jesus martha goes to jesus and she calls mary to go to jesus and as mary goes to jesus God is building a platform to display the glory, his, the glory of Christ and the purpose of Christ and the person of Christ and the promise of Christ. Mary moves toward Jesus. Martha moves toward Jesus and people follow her. That's one of the greatest testimonies a Christian can have. In the midst of all of the pain, the regret, the anxiety, the fear, the frustration, to go to Jesus. And if you go to Jesus, people will follow you there and they will meet him like you've met him when jesus saw her crying verse 33 and the jews who had come with her crying he was deeply moved 
in his spirit and trouble. Now there's um, some debate over how to um, translate this word deeply moved. Um, and I think the best explanation is actually to, to, to translate it more like something like enraged. Jesus was enraged. And, and, and so the question is, what's, what's moving him? What's, what's provoking Jesus in this moment? Um, is it the brokenness, just the brokenness of the situation and the reality of death? Well, I think it's that. But I think it's also the lack of faith in those who are present. I think Jesus is enraged over how Satan, sin, and death have ravaged the world. And they've stolen the body, the soul from the body of his friend, Lazarus. And they've stolen faith from the souls of his friends, Martha and Mary. Death and sin and Satan and the, the, have conspired against the goodness of God's creation. And they steal life from the body and they steal faith from the soul. And Jesus rages against the flesh, the world, and the devil. And he will not let sin have the final say. And he will not let death have the glory here. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench, because he has been dead four days. Jesus grieves and he rages against Satan's sin and death. He rages against death which steals soul from body. And he rages against sin, which steals faith from the soul. Here we see he weeps. But, but, and, and we're, there we see that, that in his rage and his, and his grief, he is truly a man. He is truly a human. He is God, but he is a man. He is truly human, not just a pretend human, not just wearing human nature around like a costume, but he truly, the second person of the Trinity, God the Word, God the Son, took human nature into his person. So he is one person in two natures. And, and he, he weeps and he rages because he is fully human. He experiences the full range of human emotion. But he does it in a way that is different than how we do in this sense. Often our emotions provoke and control us. They, 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 they overwhelm us by how suddenly and forcefully they, they, they wash over us like, like, a, like a tidal wave. But he, he, he was master of his emotions. He, he, his mo emotions didn't master him, but he mastered them. He, he understood, it says there literally, he was troubled or he troubled in himself. In other words, he felt emotion in a way that was appropriate for the situation and was appropriate in its extent and, 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 in, and in its ex expression. So, so, Sometimes we, we don't feel the way we should about things. 
Happy things don't make us happy and sad things don't make us sad. Other times we feel things we shouldn't about things. Sad things make us happy and happy things make us sad. It's when we see someone else rejoicing and, and, and celebrating. And because it's not us, we, we grieve and we, we feel anger and bitterness rather than obeying the Bible's command to rejoice with those who rejoice. And sometimes we weep over another's misfortune, whether it's a, another a player on a, on a rival sports team or a political opponent, and we, we rejoice in their, in their problems. Jesus, though, Jesus always feels the right thing in the right extent, in the right way, at the right time. He is master of his emotions. His emotions are not master over him. And here he foreshadows his resurrection by calling the stone to be removed. And he, he, he says, remove the stone. And Martha protests again. She still doesn't quite get it. And says, Lord, there's a stench. He's been dead four days. The, the spirit has departed. He's rotting now. There's nothing to be done. It's too late. And too soon. The Jews of that time would have would have left the, the body to, to totally decompose. And then often they would have um, put the, the bones into something called an ossuary or a bone box. And, and then that would have been the permanent resting place of the person's body. So it's too late to heal his, his body that full, was full of life. And it's too soon to put him in the ossuary. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Didn't I tell you? Verse 40, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. The, the, the Bible teaches us that faith precedes sight, that faith precedes understanding and knowing. As Augustine taught us so long ago, based on scripture, that we don't see until we believe. We don't know until we believe. So, verse 41, they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. After this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. What a moment. What a scene. Productivity expert Stephen Covey has made a famous um, exercise called the funeral exercise. He tells people, you know, envision your funeral and what would people say about you? What do you want people to say about you? And it's, I think, a helpful exercise to think about how to live your life with purpose and say if, you know, the average age is, you know, 80 something and I'm 30 something and how long do I have and, and what would I want people to say on that day? And what would I, what would I want my legacy to be? And what would I want to have done? And, and, and to think about your funeral. Well, Jesus here invites us to a, into a funeral exercise, but it's a different funeral exercise. First, he invites us into the funeral of a friend, and he turns that funeral into a festival. But he also invites us to recognize he didn't just crash Lazarus's funeral, that he wants to crash our present funeral as well. Because physical death is only a symptom of a deeper spiritual death that will lead to a prolonged and eternal death because of sin. And he invites us to let him crash our funeral. He invites us to come out of the grave. And like he called Lazarus 
scholars have noted for centuries that he he called Lazarus by name because of if he hadn't specified that every body in every grave would have come out and he's calling you by name saying come out repent and believe in the gospel be alive again he's calling us to let him crash our funeral he's calling us out of the grave he's calling us to look at what he has done and who he is in his person and his purpose and his promise That's what he invites Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the Jews who were with them into his purpose for his glory, to display his life-giving power, to provoke belief in his person and his promise.